Welcome to the Business Herald podcast. The Business Herald is a weekly roundup of all of the top UK business news stories by email, social media, and this podcast. The podcast will feature some of the week's main stories, and we'll be joined by various business people on each episode to discuss the week's news and how it might impact a smaller business like yours. And hopefully we'll have some fun on a Friday too. I'm your host, Stephen Mather. I'm a lawyer for SMEs, and I help business owners sleep better at night by sorting their legal problems out. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Business Herald. Welcome along to a very special edition of the Business Herald podcast, and one which I'm really excited to bring to you. On this episode, we'll be talking about diversity in the workplace, and I'm joined by three experts to help me and you understand just a little bit more about equality, racism and diversity in the UK. So today I'm joined by Ashido Joel, Barbara Armstrong OBE and Libby Langley, all of whom have very impressive CVs, and I'll let them introduce themselves more fully in a little bit. Ashidu is an experienced consultant, non-executive director, trustee, community advocate and a justice of the peace with over a decade's experience of supporting organisations, groups and individuals to engage and dialogue constructively across racial, cultural and social environmental settings, promoting opportunities for collaboration. Barbara is Managing Director of P3 Business Development. She's a business consultant, leadership coach, successful public speaker and author. And Libby is an MBA graduate who, since 2011, has run her own social media strategy business after a career in management at tertiary education. So welcome along. So I wanted to start with why I felt the need to make a podcast like this. So I'm fully aware of my obvious white male privilege. Um, although I come from um, humble working class council estate stock, I know and fully appreciate that my upbringing was still full of privilege. I was also brought up in Leicester State Schools. And so to me, my friends were a variety of different backgrounds, white British, European, African, Caribbean, Kosovan, the whole gambit. And it didn't really matter to me. I just didn't see it at all. But that's not to say it wasn't happening or things weren't happening. I just didn't see it uh, happening. And over the years, I've developed and and no doubt had opportunities that others uh, didn't have because of their background. Uh, None of that, I'm sure, would have been intentional on my part and perhaps even non-intentional on those providing the opportunities. But nonetheless, there still would have been inequality, I'm sure. The first time I experienced any real kind of racism was when I met my wife, who was originally from Hong Kong, and she was a racially abused, quote, for fun at uh, university for no real reason except somebody wanted to shout abuse. And she told me at the time that it happens more often than I'd perhaps realise. I also remember once when uh, UKIP came knocking on the door soliciting votes and they said something like, don't you think we have too many immigrants in this country? And I said, no, I, I don't. I think it's great. And, and, and I firmly believe it now and I believe it even more uh, I firmly believe it then and believe it even more now which is it is what makes Great Britain great is the multitude of different cultures experiences and people um, so I, I've always kind of come from that angle of things and um, the last couple of years I've seen an increase in awareness of so-called anti-racism the Black Lives Matters um, movement and which has been um, you know great to, to, to a large extent also, unfortunately, somewhat divisive, particularly online and social media comments. Um, fast forward to this year, and in preparing for hosting this podcast each week, I saw a number of stories that were of interest to, to me, um, and stories which, which perhaps didn't feel quite right talking about where my guests were mainly white middle-class men, 
never really seemed quite right. The stories I'm talking about were things like uh, Legal and General, the top um, one of the top commercial uh, con- institutional investors in the com- country, demanding that all FTSE 100 companies hire a non-white director by 2022. Um, a report saying that companies should have at least one black Asian or uh, ethnic minority person on the board. Uh, the CBI saying that uh, the biggest UK firm should at least uh, should have at least one uh, BAME person on their board by 2021. A report that said that uh, that women has uh, women on boards have increased. Um, but 40% of businesses in the FTSE 300 still failing to meet um, the kind of the targets or the targets in inverted commas. Um, and then more recently, Germany has, um, has mandated that all women, sh- women should be on boards and, and their rules um, are that boards with three or more people should include at least one woman in. And then the British Business Bank's report, um, a report called Alone Together, Entrepreneurship and Diversity in the UK, um, which came out uh, maybe a month or two ago, um, which, which carried out some quite detailed um, research and investment uh, research into um, uh, diversity in Britain. And some points here, for instance. So uh, after starting a business, black business owners have a median turnover of just £25,000 compared to £35,000 for white business owners. Only half of black entrepreneurs meet their non-financial aims compared to nearly 70% of white entrepreneurs. Access to finance, deprivation, education and underrepresentation in senior workforce positions explain the disparities. However, systemic disadvantage appears to play a role. More than a third of black female business owners and 36% of female business owners from Asian and other ethnic minority backgrounds report making no profit in the last year, compared to 16% of white male business owners. Female business owners of all ethnicities experience significantly lower median turnover than male entrepreneurs, £15,000 versus £45,000 per annum, and fewer say that they meet their financial aims. 87% 87% of those with an household household income of £75,000 or more made a profit last year compared to just 76% of those with an income below £20,000. And access to finance appears to be a major barrier for black, Asian and other ethnic minority entrepreneurs and the reason why 39% and 49% respectively stop working on their business idea. So some real fundamental issues um, uh, still at play and, um, and so I wanted to put together this podcast to talk about diversity in the workplace and, uh, and get some real views from some, um, some people that have experienced it in their lives much more than I have um, and see whether or not you know, we can make some changes um, to the listeners that listen to this podcast, to me, myself. You know, what, what can I do to improve? My first question is... Do you think that we should have mandatory quotas in certain size companies for ethnic minorities and women? But before we get into the question, perhaps you can each start by introducing yourself a little more, who you are, your business background, and then answering the question. So, Barbara, over to you, please. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, My background is that I have been running a couple of businesses now for 
oh, I don't, I don't really like to say, but my, one of my businesses is, is about 16, 17 years old. Another of my businesses is probably about five, six years old, and I run that in partnership. Prior to that, I've worked in a variety of business contexts, including being chief executive, um, being a board director on different businesses. So quite a wide and varied business background in a number of sectors as well. In terms of answering the question, I think it's quite a difficult one. If I go with my heart and my gut, I would absolutely say yes. There should be a quota for the number of women and ethnic minorities, black people that are on boards. But at the same time, when you think about what's happened in the States, for instance, where for the last more than 40 years, there have been, if we can call it that, quota systems, there's also a lot of evidence that there isn't a real commitment to delivering on those figures and it can become a bit of a tick box exercise and you know dare I use the word tokenism that I worry that we would end up just having people there for the sake of it and they themselves might experience some of the negatives of, of what it can be like when there's just one woman or one black person on a board or in a senior position and we don't know about it and are patting companies on the back because they've managed to reach a quota. So I think it's a bit of a cop-out. I haven't said yes or no, but I think there are pros and cons is what I would say. Thanks very much. Ashidu, do you want to introduce yourself and then, um, and then deal with that question? <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. Uh, so I'm Ashidu Joel. Um, I have an engineering background but I've spent uh, 12 years working in two local authorities uh, within housing and housing management. And uh, the last 17 years within uh, community engagement and community advocacy. So I run um, or founded a cultural capital um, company uh, two and a half years ago, but have been uh, operating for about uh, five years more um, as a freelance because I just felt quite, you know, passionate and engaged in it. And uh, what that's sort of done uh, for me is I've been able to sort of draw on uh, a lot of my experience over uh 20, 22 years, um, nearly 23 living in, in the UK, to sort of shape how I contribute in uh, a lot of spaces that um, I, I get to now occupy. Um, I'm involved in several initiatives across the city around domestic violence, uh, and also uh, I'm an uh, elected member within uh, the city of Leicester. Now, when we uh, talk about uh, uh, appointments at boards and, and courts, um, it, it's like Barbara said, a, a tricky one, being uh, a non-exec director myself, uh, going back now uh, nearly seven years um, with charities and recently with um, uh, an NHS trust. It can be quite tricky when we say we want to have quotas because what that means is we don't then recruit for skill, 
We don't then recruit for ability. And we don't then recruit because the person can genuinely add value. We bring people in because we have to fill uh, a certain quota on the board. And as Barbara quite highly, uh, um, uh, quite rightly highlighted, they then become um, authorized on the board. So they're there, but they're not there because they're not valued. They're not seen to um, contribute or, or bring anything that the board necessarily needs or wants at that particular point in time. But then again, how do we then go around this issue of ensuring that we get um, black and minority voices on boards where we know that we have lots of talents that can actually come on and drive some of the initiatives uh, or, or difficult agendas forward because they have lived experience of some of the issues that have been um, danced around uh, by board executives because there is nobody there to say that um, I can tell you how that feels because I have lived it, I have experienced it and so I can share and I, I can relate to what that member of staff or, or that uh, team lead or team manager or that exec member says they're feeling because it's quite difficult and quite lonely when you're the only one of anything anywhere. It's quite novel in the first few weeks because you are uh, running on a high. But after those few weeks, you look around and there is nobody you know, that you can relate to uh, in terms of sharing your experiences. You um, have to adapt your behavior suddenly because you, you really genuinely want to be seen to, to belong. So I, I think um, in so many ways, it isn't just a cut and dried situation to say we're going to have coaches. If you have coaches, will boards then be allowed to hire for skill and experience using that quota rather than, well, we've lost our um, black or, or Asian or, or minority ethnic um, uh, non-exec uh, or executive on the board and we need a replacement, anybody will do. And then that anybody comes along and they're not effective. So you further disenfranchise people because they know that they're not effective. They know that they're not valued. They know they don't belong. And therein lies the whole catch 22 of emotional trauma. Shall I stay, shall I leave? And if I leave, where to and, and how? So, yeah. Excellent. Um, really interesting. Libby, do you want to introduce yourself and have a uh, first, first view on that question as well, please? Yeah, um, I'm Libby Langley and I, um, I'm a social media strategist. My background is within largely public sector within the education world. I've worked in um, three different FE colleges over the years, always with a marketing and commercial kind of angle. And it's very much a female dominated sector, interestingly. Um, the mentioned um, 
working in the NHS as well. But, um, and, and that, again, is another female kind of dominated, dominated sector. So um, and I'm a white woman, so my experience is from a white woman's perspective. But um, I, I've experienced, when I was younger, I certainly experienced prejudice as a woman from the men in charge. Uh, but largely, I think the prejudice I felt against me was my age, because the first job I got, I was told that I had to be 21 to get it. And I was 19 and I got it. Um, they changed the rules for me to do with car insurance. So I, I right from the start, I did feel a certain amount of, of prejudice there. But I know that that job was given to me because of my skill and certainly your other two guests have mentioned about tokenism and I would absolutely hate to think I'd been given a job because of my gender I I would be offended I wouldn't want to do it and so so the reason the reason you're chosen to to fit a quota is just it's just awful and to me we shouldn't even be at this stage we shouldn't be having this conversation we should be looking at the reasons why we're at the stage of needing, needing to have quotas so it should be more about equality in certainly in stem topics um at school more women in actually do you you're from an engineering background you say but certainly there so, so topics like that there should be more encouragement for people who are not white males <laughs> to to go into to those particular fields and to me that's that's where the problems lie it we shouldn't be trying to put a sticking plaster of quotas on things that isn't isn't the company's fault isn't the board's fault it's about getting to that stage in the first place yeah it's it's one of those things i saw these headlines and that's the reason why i wanted to question it is because there is a a possibility that it comes across as um, virtue signaling is the, the phrase these days of just showing, you know, well, uh, yeah, look, we're, uh, you know, a nice, caring, compassionate company. And, you know, look, we've got, we've got one black person on and on the board and we've met the quota and that's, that's fine, isn't it? And, and almost like, if that's, if that's what they think is necessary to, um, to, 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 to be a decent organization, then, um, uh, like I, I'm, I'm kind of would be pleased that they have to publish those statistics because it would m allow us as individuals to go, okay, I don't want to work with that company or buy products or services from that company because they're not dealing with things properly and they're not treating things, um, you know, and treating people in the right uh, way because, like you say, it's it, it becomes a bit of um, uh, of tokenism. Uh, but one of the things that I, I perhaps didn't appreciate until you you uh, mention it is actually the the issue of being one of anything i think was actually mm. um, terminology one of anything in you know it would be a really lonely situation to be in and again i've i've never had that i've never you know i've always been a, 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 a alongside people that are you know the same uh, same kind of background and and privilege as me um libby can i make a point last um Last week, the networking group that I co-host, that Stephen, you come along to, and Barbara, that's where I first met you. Mm -hmm. um, the last one, I was the host. It was my, my turn to host. My co-host is male. Every single attendee, bar me, was male. And I, I made a joke of this because the only woman there, so the woman's in charge. You know, I'm quite comfortable with, with that. But what was interesting that 
was that none of the men who attended had registered that there was only one woman there. Mm. And it just, I don't know, to me, that's just kind of symptomatic of the issues that women, a lot of women face in that if it's a breakfast networking meeting, then I don't have children, but a lot of women have children and children are often the primary carer. So breakfast meetings can be challenging because people have got to sort their kids out and those kind of things. And it's just often issues that people don't realise exist. So the alternative is often to have women only networking groups or you know, whichever, whichever um, section of society we all fit into. But that doesn't defeat the object because that's not helping to grow and develop and to make a more inclusive society. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the um, reports that prompted me to, um, to, to look into this and do this podcast was from the British Business Bank. Um, and, uh, and, and it was entitled Alone Together, Entrepreneurship and Diversity in the UK. Um, and some really interesting stats that came out of it. Um, but in terms of female entrepreneurs from ethnic minority, ethnic minority backgrounds, it says this. So um, more than a third, 37% of black female business owners um, reported making no profit last year compared to 16% of white male business owners. And female business owners of all ethnicities experience significantly lower median turnover than male entrepreneurs, £15,000 per year against £45,000 per year. And fewer say that they meet their financial aims. So, you know, talking about um, you know, the, the kind of the entrepreneur uh, people you know, that have perhaps maybe been in a corporate um, environment and felt that it, it wasn't... Um, wasn't right for them, let's just put it as loosely as that, tried to set up in business on their own and they're still facing difficulties, still not quite having that level of, uh, of equality just because of their background. Um, Barbara, when you set up your business, what, what made you move from kind of being that CEO to setting up in business? What was that decision about? I think the biggest reason for me, Stephen, was I felt... I didn't want to move from being a CEO in one business to a CEO in another. I really thought I should put my money where my mouth is and be an entrepreneur. It's something that I'd always wanted to do. And like Libby said, you know, married, got children that you're bringing up that need to feel that your job is secure and all of those good things and you're providing for your family. And then when it gets to the stage where kids gone off to to university I thought if I don't do it now I'm never going to do it so it was a mixture of I'd been a chief executive for many years and loved what I was doing but I also felt it was probably a little safe and you know I wanted to to be brave enough to step up and step into something that I'd wanted to do for a long time so as well as all of the other things like I really believe that I could add value, that I had something to give, something that would have an impact and make a difference. All of those things went along with it as well. But one of the biggest drivers for me was um, I didn't want to keep talking about doing it and actually get on and do it. Mm. That was the mm. main reason. Um, actually, one of the things that you mentioned um, was recruiting on skill recruiting on the value that um, that they can add uh, people can add to a business um, as, as, a, as a business owner the people that are listening to this podcast hopefully business owners how how can they do that how can they ensure that they are purely just recruiting on skill 
So the first question or the second part of that question might be related to what Libby was saying. And is that actually a more fundamental investment into our education system and you know, the way in which we're you know, bringing kids up these days? So two part question, I should do, if that's OK. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I think I'm going to flip the questions around um, now. Um, Education is, is, is key. As, as somebody who is um, uh, a cultural uh, a capital enthusiast, so one of the things that we bring or we take along with us wherever we go in the world is our education, our level of education or level of exposure, um, our experiences, you know, lived and perceived, um, our, our, our attitudes and our, our uh, our, our belief system. So when we are looking at education as a tool for empowerment or as a tool for uh, social mobility or uh, to break down barriers, we're not just talking about the um, education children get whilst in school, looking at just the curriculum. We're also looking at the education that society impacts to them. So you can have a child who is an A student because they are very good at theory, but have not been equipped to be able to thrive within a workplace or within society, because that is something that uh, in some ways is left to the family and left to friends to help that, you know, nurture those sort of uh, uh, strengths and traits in a child where you learn how to um, negotiate in some ways, they do pick those things up in school where you go into school, you have a disagreement and uh, the teacher is saying, you know, your friends, you should be able to disagree amicably. What they're telling the child without actually breaking it down is you need to learn to manage conflict. But where we have a system where you have um, tutors or you have uh, 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 teachers who have no concept of anything other than uh, a very Eurocentric way of training children. You run the risk then of um, minimizing the experience of the non-white um, immigrant child, the new arrival who's come with lots of experience, you know, lots of memories of where they're coming from and is looking to share. And that sharing helps to educate those other children. So we learn from that. We find that our children build stronger bonds. They are more resilient when they get to understand what it is that makes me different from my friend and how their life experience, though different from mine, has not diminished who they are, but has helped me to further understand how and why that person is the way they are. So it's not about tolerance, it is about respect. Now, if you translate that into the workplace, what that rounded child or rounded individual is bringing to the workplace is not just the knowledge of that sector. They're coming with, you know, a lot of soft skills. So they're coming with, you know, the ability to be able to operate um, 
cross-culturally, so operates with a lot of cultural competence, awareness, sensitivity. They're coming with the ability to be able to negotiate and disagree, but respectfully. Mm -hmm. They're coming with the ability to be able to be challenged and welcome it rather than see it as an affront, because a lot of the time, uh, what holds people back within the workplace is, um, I am a subordinate staff and I challenge Barbara or challenge Libby and straight away because they have operated always within a space of um, their experience and their word is you know, deemed to be the most relevant. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't come into that space then and say, oh, hang on, whilst I agree that we need to do X, Y, Z, um, I think that perhaps we could try because I have seen it done elsewhere. A lot of the time that is taken as uh, unnecessary challenge. It isn't. It is me just being able to feel confident and safe enough to be able to say, I can voice my opinion. I have been enabled by my workplace, by my superiors, by my mentors and by my coaches, by my teachers and leaders at work to have a voice, to be able to share my thoughts on a particular process. And when you go on further to look at what exactly is it that I as a manager or I as a leader or I as a CEO, what exactly am I looking for in my employee? Am I looking for just experience or am I looking for innovation, creativity, dynamism, you know, someone who will be able to, to think and challenge? Is that what I'm looking for? So that informs how we go on to craft our, our, our roles and start to design and devise how we seek out our next employee and perhaps potential next CEO, because they come with a mindset of you know, development, a mindset of innovation to work alongside others, not to work uh, uh, by themselves in the company of because that's another thing. Many people go to work to work in the company of others, not to work alongside and in partnership with. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Libby, do you think um, businesses can, uh, could there be a better way of recruiting uh, staff so that we're looking you know, more at their skills and the value that they can bring rather than their background? I, I know I'm not asking you to comment on, you know, the, the, the detailed st statistics, but I've seen, um, I know businesses these days, they've, they've, some businesses have moved to, um, and I forget what they call it, um, but they, they, they're, they're almost uh, um, blanking out certain parts of CVs. So they'll blank out people's names. Anonymous recruiting, they're anonymizing it, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and is, that, is that one way to get people on board that, that are from different backgrounds that, you know, can add into the mix? Libby, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we used to um, we used to do in in the public sector when I worked for the FE College. I mean, I left there over nine years ago, so it's certainly something I think in the public sector that's fairly commonplace. Um, and it's it seems to me a reasonable practice because we all have prejudices, whether we 
you know, whether we like it or not, we, we all do. Um, and certainly there used to be, oh, years ago, 25 years ago, there used, there was this spate of putting photos on CVs. Yeah. And I just think that that's a really dangerous practice because if somebody's got a tattoo or certain piercings or a certain hair colour or, or a certain colour of skin or a certain gender, then, <clears throat> then it could enable them to get the job or stop them getting the job, depending on, on, on which way the quotas are sitting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think anonymising CVs is a really good idea. But for me, it just all comes back to starting early. If... If, employ if companies are really, really believe that they want to have a diverse workplace and that's something that they want to encourage, then they should be not necessarily recruiting people from schools, but supporting educa certain education programmes within schools, such as entrepreneurial skills or something much more simple than that what it's actually like to work in a company because we all leave school or go, go to university and then not have a clue what the nine to five means. Um, so a company can can get themselves instilled, that, sorry, their ethics instilled in a, in a school, local schools, their local catchment area and work from there. And to me, that would be much more beneficial to society as a whole and to um, encouraging inclusivity across the board than ticking boxes as oh right you're a woman you can come in oh you're from uh, what a particular minority group you can come in it just that that's not progressive mm. one of the things um touching on like education one of the things that i think um clearly still needs to be uh, changed is the way in which we teach kids particularly teach kids about black history not just our you know white history that's and one it. of the things that um actually astounded me is um when they were naming uh those the, the temporary hospitals for the um for, for covid mm. and they called them the nightingale hospitals mm -hmm. and i'm like yeah good idea that's really good until someone pointed out to me um is it mary seacole yeah, um seacole. and um a, a pioneer of medical provision um to the British as well. Um, but we seem to have just erased her completely from yeah. history for a massive period of time. And I, and I was there and I was absolutely gobsmacked, astounded that I'd never heard of this person. Same. I, 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 the same person educated me in it as well. And I, <laughs> I consider myself to be a fairly rounded um, kind of person in terms of mm. my education and my beliefs and opinions and everything. I'd never heard of her. And yeah. I, was, I was appalled at the, that gap in my own knowledge and actually quite you know not not far off being disgusted that yeah. the same we're like the way, the way we're taught we, yeah. we've, we've, we were let down massively by our education system by not having that information before yeah. us um it's it's it was it's it's almost akin to you know having some of the um you know the dictators of the world and we being taught that these were really nice good guys Right. It's it's kind of if that's what we're taught and we'd grow up and think, you know, well, actually, these are these are these are good people. Why is everybody, you know, having a go at them? And and to, to have just that that one little snippet of information that that I've picked up since, you know, leaving school more recently. And I think like, wow, if 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 our teachers are failing our children by not covering important subjects like that that really make a difference and, and and of people that really make a difference to history not some you know some some um unimportant event but something that was majorly important in history and we're not teaching it maybe that um actually uh, mentioned not just having tolerance but having respect 
for different people's background. Maybe that failure in our education system is what's not helping us to have respect when we get to to, to work level because we've no idea as a, as a white person brought up in an English school in the in the eighties absolutely no idea about you know proper black history so i start off the this show by saying you know well it, i'm all right because i grew up in a in you know a leicester based state school where i had lots of different cultural backgrounds you know growing up but almost like well that was that was nothing really because unless i'm taught about those people's backgrounds and taught to respect those people's backgrounds and appreciate the differences um, that, then I think we're failing kids. And there was one phrase that um, really stood out to me. And, and I've said this before, which is, you know, again, because of my, my background and my upbringing, is that um, I've never treated people differently. I've never seen any. <laughs> I don't see the colour differences. And, and that's such a, a fundamentally incorrect point of view. But I know it's, it's coming from a good heart, is that I genuinely believe I've not been racist in any way. But to understand and for people to start to understand that seeing or, or, or saying you see everybody as the same, I treat everybody the same, is, is completely wrong because you're not respecting where they've come from. We're not respecting their background. Absolutely. Um, and so, Barbara, um, summary of that question is, do you think actually it's something much more fundamental in like the way in which we're teaching our kids that, that needs to change as well? Absolutely. I was thinking as you were talking about that, that I didn't, I wasn't as a black child taught any um, African, Caribbean or any other, you know, Asian, no history at all. And what I have learned over the years has been me seeking out that information myself. So when you think about that now in the context of children who are going through the experiences they are from school right through into the workplace, if you don't have a sense of there are people like me who have done great things that people could look to and say, you exemplify that or they exemplify that to you, you're already in a difficult position because you're looking always for sources for inspiration, for connectedness, for understanding in a very limited space. And for me, I think, you know, from a very personal perspective, that thing that I said about wanting to start my own business and stop talking about it and do it, some of that was related to, as a black woman, can I really do it? And I don't know how conscious I was of that for many years, but certainly by the time I got to the stage where I was ready to start my own business, that became very, very obvious to me that that experience of nobody I knew had done it. Nobody had talked about it. Nobody had shown me any examples. I didn't know. I wasn't inspired by. That then became so obvious to me that, you know, my daughter now says I, I went completely the other way where I just taught her so much. It was a bit overwhelming because at least she has that information now, information that I didn't have. And people might say, well, that's history. And what, what difference does it make? And what does it matter? You're now living in this context, in this country, in this, in this culture. Well, I would argue exactly the same as um, Ishido was saying, that understanding the context of who I am, where I've come from, what other people before me have done, massively influences me 
in the very least way, it's about confidence, you know, never mind aspiration, never mind, you know, a real checking of what I'm able to do, just the confidence alone to be able to say, well, I can do that, or I want to do that, or it's feasible for me to do that is such a huge step up. And then all of the other things that come with it, you know, which we wouldn't have time on this, this podcast to be able to go into. So in essence, yes, I think we do our, our children a massive disservice and not just black children or um, females. I think it's across the board. You as a white male, not even hearing about Mary Seacole is an injustice to you, is a disservice to you mm. that you didn't even know that. Never mind to me and all of the other people that are out there that have no clue. So, yeah, yeah. I'll stop there. <laughs> Libby. It's just to bring a bit of a pop culture reference into this, but it's um, I've just started watching The Crown. So I've just finished season one, a bit behind the times on that. But what's really interesting is everything that you've said, Barbara, just <laughs> it, it kind of just crystallises it all in that, because that's set in the really through the, the early 50s, that first the 40s, 50s. And everything about the Queen is there just by birth. But everything is the white male British men colonising the world mm. and on their tours they go off and they talk about how um, this was a savage country and now mm. we've come along and made it all decent and it's just it's, it's it's appalling to watch now because it's such recent history but the fact that that's what we were taught that's what we were raised on you know Britannia, Britannia rules the, the waves it's just it, it's appallingly outmoded now and gives the wrong message across completely that that's not what our society is like it's not what our society has been like for 50 years but because we've had 500 years of that being drilled into us that's what we're still made to believe now even if we don't believe it mm. part of us knows it to be the, the case mm. because that's how the world works unfortunately yeah as you do I'm, I'm right in thinking you were you were born in Nigeria and raised in Nigeria is that right yes so I, um I, so you'll have a different uh you know a different experience what and 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 also you'll see kind of you know what's going on in the UK right now and and the education system so um do you think do you think it needs to change, you know, coming from where you've, you, you know, you've you come from and what you've been taught, presumably at school, would have been a, a, a hell of a lot different than what we've been taught at school, particularly sort of the history side of things? Yeah, well, yes. Uh, growing up really was, was um, very interesting because a lot of um, my and uh, mine and my, my siblings' um, childhood we we sort of spent traveling with my parents and one of the the places they spent quite a lot of their summers was um here in the uk so it, it was interesting to to come but you know you're coming and looking at it you know um, year on year on um from uh, a holiday maker's uh, perspective and it, it was interesting because we had friends that we spent time with and you just never really kind of see all the things you see now so coming here and having uh, children of my own and, and seeing the uh, huge <laughs> disparity in, in how they, they learn uh, was interesting. So um, two years ago, my, my elders had to do a piece of um, history work. 
and she'd chosen to write uh, about the, the First World War. And she uh, came, you know, one day really excited. She said, oh, mommy, did you know that uh, there were Africans, you know, that fought for uh, the empire during the First World War? Uh, and my, my dad um, came out of the room and he said, oh, yes, he said, um, you have, you know, you, we, we've got uh, relatives that, that fought for the empire. Now, that was absolutely mind blowing because my dad sort of took us on a, a mini history lesson of how um, relatives of ours and some I, I actually um, grew up to know and meet um, had been um, part and parcel of the, the, the British army, they'd fought for Britain and they've gone back and somehow their life had just carried on. It was almost as if after the war, they were just sort of dismissed. So it, it, it was shocking, uh, very much so for my daughter. And so our journey to um, on earth, our Africanness, if you like, began because, you know, they wanted suddenly to learn, they wanted suddenly to, to understand. And the more um, I unpacked the, the, the syllabus, the, the sadder I got because somehow I had always just assumed that um, it, it's something that at some point in time, um, the children would be taught in school. And so it was shocking to find out that it didn't happen throughout primary school and several years into secondary school, it's only by choice that my daughter is having to learn, you know, about the contributions of other nationalities. It's like they were, so, you know, mysteriously airbrushed and waved out of history. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's sad uh, as, as a parent and as someone who grew up in, in, in another country, in another culture, calls this place home. So um, I have two cultures now that um, we have to try to get to work seamlessly, where my children are very, very much, you know, very extremely proud, you know, to be to be uh, British. And again, this is something really funny because uh, my daughter was told by by a teacher when she was in primary school she couldn't identify as English, and that she found that really upsetting. And I I, I couldn't quite work it out. So, who and, and what are we is is a question because there, there, there's a, a, a huge issue of identity crisis, especially for um, those of us who come from cultural backgrounds, who are not white, so have or have infusions of whiteness in our families. So my, my sister-in-law um, is from Southampton, my, my, my nephews and my, my niece, you know, are very proud to call themselves, to identify as, as Nigerian. Um, so how do we get um, children of modern British society to embrace multicultural, you know, their multicultural self? You don't have to be 
uh, black or brown or Asian or Chinese or, or Vietnamese or, or whichever uh, 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 ethnic background you come from to identify as being multicultural by reason of being part of modern Britain. We all have within us a multicultural element to us. You talked about, you know, your, your family, Steve, uh, and I'm sure, you know, Libby, if you sort of look back, you'll see that you had influences from around the world that have shaped your views in lots of ways, same as, as Barbara. So it's, we, it, it's about how we take our new cultural experience and use it as a driving force to ensure that when we talk about, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion or inclusive practice within the workplace, within our business networks, we're coming at it from a place of real open-mindedness and true understanding of what that means and how we have each been enriched by the, the people we come in contact with, the influences we've had from across the world. In my, you might never have left the United Kingdom, but you've watched movies, you've read books, you know, you've seen and heard of great um, historical characters from other parts of the world that you have been able to draw something up. It's like when um, uh, um, Chad Boswick died, uh, who played, you know, T'Challa. Everybody wanted to suddenly go and live in, you know, in, in, in Wakanda because he touched something in us and it wasn't because he was black living or uh, epitomizing a, a, a black dynasty. It was because there was a part of his humanness that touched each and every one of us. And, and that's really key when we start to talk about the impact of culture, you know, on business, on, on education, on, on uh, you know, lots of, of, of different uh, uh, areas because our children don't just see for today, they see for tomorrow. So long after we're gone, it'll be how this generation has been raised that they raise the next one. And if we raise one which is very biased in, in its outlook, then we really stand no, no, no chance to be able to sort of drive things forward. Just to quickly come back on, on the, the, the question of, of skills and employment. One, one thing that I try to always uh, highlight is how when we look at our job adverts, it's interesting to see the sort of language that is used there where um, jobs, you know, a, a candidate is, you know, asked, are you the right candidate? We want somebody, you know, the right, uh, with the right skills, the right experience. And so I always ask myself, is there somebody who would ever deem themselves to not be the right candidate? Or have we reached um, this fast turnaround where I write a job and I project how I believe that job ought to carry on after me. And so I'm looking for the exact replacement of me. And the Mr. X who reads it, sees the job and thinks I can do that. 
but I have already prepped and primed my team and my superiors for a cloned me coming in. And that person automatically then has no chance because I've set them up to fail and I have set my team up to not help them thrive, to ensure that they don't belong there, they never feel welcome there because I have put in place structures that defeats the purpose of what it is that we're all trying to work towards. So that's something that I always encourage businesses to, to have at the back of their mind. When you're looking to recruit a, a new post or an existing or current post, how do you structure you, your adverts? And what is it about the person living that you want and want to improve on rather than are we looking to get a mirror image of this person? You will never get a mirror image. So that person coming in has already failed from day one. Mm. Yeah, fascinating viewpoint. I read a report recently that suggested that um, a woman in her 30s would never see equality in her lifetime in the workplace. Um, and that's quite... You know that's quite a serious um, statement to make. When we have um, taken into account, um, you know, black and uh, ethnic minorities into the mix as well, um, and this and the, and where we're you know where we're currently sat, is it is it likely? Um, I'll come to you, Barbara, first. Is it likely that we'll see the the equity that um, that we'd all like to you know see, and 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 as you do. Um, you know, effectively talking about we're all human beings and actually the makeup of us all is, is exactly the same. It's just that our, our ethnicity changes depending on where we were brought up and our background changes depending on, on again, where we were brought up, how we were brought up. Um, is, is, is it something that can change? In, and, and is there something that can change in the next 30 years? Or is it something that is still going to be uh, something that's talked about, uh, as Libby was talking about with the crown, in 500 years' time? Um, and not not predicting too far in the in the future, but um, is it something that is that that can actually change in a short period of time? Let's ask it that way, Barbara. Well, um, I'm an eternal optimist, so my heart—you see everything I do with my heart. My heart says yes there can be change, because I do believe that people can change. I believe that context can change, thinking can change. So I'm a big believer in all of that. But if I go by evidence of what's happened over the past, the past three decades, then if we're talking about the next three decades, there are incremental shifts um, and change in approach, but fundamentally, I don't see those shifts. Maybe other people do and can evidence that, but that's not been my experience. So for instance, for us in 2020, to still be having um, training for women to be able to sit on a board, where was the training for men to be able to sit on a board? When we are still saying, um, we have to find ways to recruit so that people from other ethnic backgrounds have either an equal opportunity or, you know, can even get a foot in the door. You know, where, where is the fundamental shift? So 
I believe now that we have changed our language. So now we, we talk about unconscious bias, for instance. So we do recognize that there's something inherent in people, in structures, in systems that make it difficult for those fundamental changes. But I think what we haven't done is gone beyond awareness. So we say that and we give people training and we talk to them about it and we go, it's got to be different and you've got to act differently and think differently. But once I've had that training, what happens then? Do I just go back to what I was always doing and there is no policing yet? Yeah, there's no policing of that. There's no addressing of that. There's no challenging. There is no consequence to it. Then I would say, while I'd love to be an optimist and say in the next 30 years, there would be some fundamental shift. I have to realistically say, no, when I look back at the last 30 years, there will be incremental shifts, but there will not be fundamental shifts. And when you can have at a football match, people booing players only yesterday for showing solidarity that black people are indiscriminately killed by police officers and nobody seems to care about it. How could I possibly sit here on this mm. podcast and say, yes, I'm gonna see some fundamental changes. Yeah. What possesses somebody to go to a sport, this is a sport, and when they see somebody kneel in respect to boo them, how could I possibly say that in the next 30 years I'm gonna see no. changes for women and for people of color? I'm not gonna see it. No. There will be tiny shifts because we know what we're good at is we know how to use language. People have got better at using language. So it's harder to spot sexism and racism. It was, it's not so blatant but it's still there. Yeah. And when, when there are people in positions of power that are still making those decisions, then what's gonna happen? You know, is anything gonna happen with that football club yesterday? And I'm just using them because it was yesterday or the day before, I can't remember. Yeah, well, it's, it the FA should step weekend. in and, and, yeah. and, and stop them having fans in the stadiums again. Like point blank, yeah. that is not- Find them, you yeah, know, do absolutely. something that shows that there are consequences mm. to our behavior. If people go, well, ah, well, you know, yeah, next thing we're gonna argue is, well, it's freedom of speech and freedom of opinion. But yeah, is, it, is your freedom of speech, you know, the cost to me is much higher than it is to you, that mm. it's okay that if I go out there on the street now, a police officer could treat me completely different to the point where I could end up being dead in comparison to you who gets a slap on the wrist, then actually now we're talking a bit more than about freedom of speech, aren't we, mm. in reality? So yeah. I'm sorry to kind of put a, a dampener on the conversation, but no, 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 it's, I'm it's, optimistic it's, that there will be incremental, but not fundamental uh, change. And I think, I think that's the point of my question really, Barbara, yeah. was, was it, it's, it's great <laughs> um, that there's been some movement. And I think over the last five yeah. years, maybe, I don't know if it's me personally has changed or, 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 or what, but, um, there does seem to be those those slight changes, and there's some people that um, that are calling it out, you know, yeah. and, and like that football match, you know, see it on social media. There's lots of people that's it's absolutely outrageous. But then social media being what it is, there's also some people that <laughs> seem to be defending it somehow, and you're like, oh, this is unbelievable. Um, yeah, we, we sort of you go into like the. Um, the Sainsbury's advert and the comments mm -hmm. on social media was people talking about boycotting the shop. Like, are you mad? 
what <laughs> and and so it goes into you know there's a lot of lot of um you know in-depthness there that goes into it and and it fundamentally comes down to my concern that um not everybody is approaching things like like i am and and you know having you guys on a podcast to talk about it and help and change and read and learn and grow and develop myself maybe not everybody in this country is going to do that and unless we start from day one when they're when they're born and teach them um those those issues of respect uh that uh, Shida was talking about then it, it, it's not going to change quickly and that's my mm. concern um actually do you, what what do you think is it something that uh do you agree with barbara that it's an incremental thing a long term is, is still going to be a, a long-term fight <laughs> oh my god um i agree with barbara um that we're not going to see, you know, massive, massive uh, changes because whilst the um, public message uh, is, 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 you know, is, is one of positivity, uh, we're still hearing of, you know, lots of shoddy practice uh, within organisations uh, and... Uh, there is a, a, you know, a real sense of uh, entitlement uh, amongst um, some leadership teams to be able to carry on, you know, business as, as usual. So uh, I think one of the 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 the, the biggest lie that um, staff, regulators, and the public is told is that. Uh, this uh, training has been delivered. People are suddenly, you know, um, very aware of what they ought to do and ought not to do, and everything, you know, has shifted for, for the better. Uh, and in my experience, people attend this training, and um, you can't change some of the learned uh, behaviors because um, if I've been on um, an equality and diversity training, and I think, well, um, that is part of something that I need to have for my next performance review and appraisal. So when I turn up there, I, you know, announce I had the training done. Uh, what did I learn? And I come with, you know, my tick sheet of the, the key points that were flagged at the meeting. And my manager says, yes, you know, I am operating and how do I think I've applied that to work? And I just run off an example. So we're not fact checking with employees. And mm. when we do fact check with employees, we never give them, you know, the agency of voice and space to be able to actually influence change. So it's more about keeping people happy at work um, they were asked what they thought or, or how they feel if their manager has been utilising or, or, or the uh, uh, CEO has been utilising what he learned from, you know, his last coaching sessions. And of course, who will say no to that? And when people are, are, are happy to speak up, they speak up and they want to be uh, anonymous. And that should be telling whoever is doing the fact-checking that there are still issues there where a member of staff is saying, I will tell you what's happening, but I, I would like to remain anonymous. There is a lot of fear going on there. Mm. There isn't, 
a, a, a true culture of you know uh, uh, inclus inclusion uh, or even equitable practice where everybody is given an opportunity to have a voice. We will never all have the same voice. I think that's that's the problem because um, I am black, so. Um, my experience as a black African woman, having lived in several countries and several continents is very different to my black Caribbean counterpart who was born here and has experienced prejudice within a, a British you know, uh, uh, society. I have come from where I think, you know, I'm like everybody else. And then to be told I am different and I have to go through the motions of having to understand why I'm different, how I'm different and how I'm maybe going to, to be able to address that. The system does not enable me to immediately recognize uh, uh, places for help because um, Barbara said uh, 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 in, in one of her responses, one of the things that motivated her to go into business was about being her own role model. Because you look around and you can only aspire to be what you see. For me, I went into business for the singular reason. I was told by a manager, my face didn't fit. So I was managing a team, but told the team looked better with my face out of it. So if they wanted to do anything public, um, I, I, you know. So I'm trying to get that addressed through the so-called proper channels became a huge distress for me. So it's not so much about um, all of these fancy things that are in place for people to latch onto to say, I have done this, I have done that, I have done that. How are we ensuring that our children, white, black, brown, you know, from wherever, can actually see role models in every person they meet? They, they can, you know, see something inspirational. I don't have to be looking for a fellow black woman to inspire me to be my very best. But that is what this society has uh, uh, almost constructed out for us. Mm. So I have to be seeking somebody that looks and sounds and thinks and responds like me to be able to uh, um, draw on their success to be able to you know learn from their mistakes and failures to to shape me because if the society says um i am who i am and i am proud of who i am but must i be limited to just who i am i should be able to to to, to go um between um, stratifications Mm, that's good, yeah. To be influenced, to be successful, mm. but also to influence others. And that's, that's where, you know, I, I think there's, there's a huge 
a huge gap because in the exec world, have you done the training? Have you been on it? Yes, you've been on it. And what did you think? Oh, fantastic. Uh, and then, you know, everybody kind of goes through the same um, pipeline. But when it comes to having difficult conversations, everything kind of comes to a standstill. So things are just pushed around and it keeps going around and it keeps going around and it keeps going around until somebody kicks it into the long grass or, you know, you have something tragic happen and people for two minutes want to talk about it and very mm. quickly bury it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did some um, unconscious bias training from apparently one of the country's, you know, leading trainers. It was aimed at lawyers and um, and I did it. And a part of the course was to put two images on the screen and, um, and, and, and kind of then just invite you to, you know, to discuss amongst yourself uh, on your own, you know, what your initial views were. And there'd, there'd be, you know, like a, a man in a suit and uh, a woman with a tattoo on a neck or some, you know, something like that. And, um, and, they, and they showed a few of them, um, but, but they never showed a black person um, on the screen. And it was almost as if they, uh, they didn't want to approach the subject or didn't want to, to deal with that subject. It's like, well, we'll only talk about the kind of the softer, you know, it's a bit, a bit easier to kind of um, uh, to talk about the difference between somebody that has a tattoo on the neck and a, you know, and a white middle class man in a suit, not in a nicely pressed shirt and uh, and, and suit with a tie on, and and that I can show you what unconscious bias is about by looking at it and going, well, I probably wouldn't give it to the person that with a tattoo, but they didn't didn't go as far as 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 you know putting a um, uh, somebody from the, you know the Caribbean up and somebody you know that from from Sheffield, you know, white middle class guy from Sheffield coming up and. And, and showing the two because and, and it just it seemed a bit of a shame to me because you know uh, perhaps it wasn't the right course right perhaps it wasn't a course on being anti-racist um and 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 perhaps for the people that attended um it it was their first step in um you know in in, in realizing that they might want to do something and might want to you know start learning and things like that um but when you start as i have um, just starting on a journey of learning about things and start reading and um, and, and taking the time. It uh, for for me one of the things that that really has to change, and one of the reasons why I wanted to make this podcast is is that um, people in my kind of position, um, you know, I'm calling myself out. We need to be anti-racist. And, and which, in, in my my viewpoint, is calling that inequality and equity out, whatever it is, you know. So if that's um, the, uh, um, calling it out when the football fans are chanting uh, at a football stadium because they're they're taking the knee, or somebody is um, making a snide comment uh, about it, or they are. Um, <sighs> what was it a few months ago where they um where the um statues of the slave traders were mm. taken down and people were like well that's history you know we could you know we should keep it that's our history we should keep it and 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 my role i'm i feel like my role as somebody that is learning about this is to call it out and say no actually we sh we should we shouldn't we should talk about the racist side of it the the the, the, the slave trade aspects of that that's the reason why the, the statue and we should talk about it um so I, I, I want to finish up, um, if I may, asking you all for your top 
tips for people in, in you know, sort of in business that maybe are like me, you know, white middle class kind of people that are listening to this show, what your top tips would be to start to make those changes? Bearing in mind, we're all, I think, agreed that this is something that is going to be still a long term thing. You know, what can I do as a person to improve me and to improve the way in which I interact with everybody else? Um, so, uh, Libby, let's start with you. Um, just following up on the points that um, that Barbara and Ashley do made. Oh about- yeah, sorry, I didn't come to you about that, did I? Yes, no, it's all right. <laughs> no, I just thought of a couple of things that were kind of interesting from my perspective. Actually, how things have changed over the last, I guess, twenty five years would be would be my experience of stuff. And one thing that came to mind was in a very early job that I had. I was only there six months or so. I was pulled to one side because in the summer I wasn't wearing tights and the women all had to wear tights and that's not that long ago and I mean that's just incomprehensible now I think but this was this was a local newspaper you know somewhere you've all somewhere you've all heard of so yeah I was taken to one side because as a woman I was not wearing not wearing tights and um women I had to get a letter from my doctor to say that in the heat wearing tights aggravated my eczema and it's just wow yeah and women we all had to wear skirts we weren't allowed to wear trousers and the next place I went to work or a later place I went to work a big um one of the big phone directory companies in Birmingham um women were only allowed to wear trousers if they were part of a suit and this like I say this (laughs) this is not that long ago so just looking back on on that there have been changes, small but equally quite important changes. Uh, certainly in my my working my working lifetime. But the um, but the thing that I think people need to be most aware of is this. It's definitely we've mentioned it a few times, but this unconscious bias. Um, but when it comes to things like everyday sexism, we us women, whatever whatever our ethnic background, experience it every single day going to the supermarket <laughs> in our working life um, talking to someone on the phone trace people coming around calling you love you know I mean it just all the time we we experience this and it's not intended to be nasty most of the time but that's kind of that's where it becomes systemic isn't it because it's not intended to be bad but it's there and it it, you, it all adds up to be kind of offensive um if you pull it all together so i i think for for employers it's to really look at people based on their skill set to do blind recruitment um rather than than having all people even the hobbies and interests it's nice to get to know people but you you have an unconscious bias towards people who have a certain hobby or interest and if they mention something about being a black culture advocate even if you can't see their name oh well you know is that a red flag do i want you know do i want any kind of advocate working for me and that and that's wrong so treating people just on their their skills um and suitability for the job would be would be the way forward and educating ourselves as you've said Stephen you and I are on pretty much the same journey I think I think at the moment just realizing whilst we are 
we like to think of ourselves as rounded and educated people actually there's just massive holes there mm. and there shouldn't be massive holes there mm. um so trying to absorb as much of other people's experiences as possible in order to make ourselves better people and in our own little way the world the world is a, a better place so that's what i would say excellent thank you barbara your top tips for business owners to uh, to help make change um a difficult one because the first question you asked Steve was um, whether or not quotas were the right thing mm. and while I said not really because it can lead to tokenism I, I genuinely think that that's probably where something has to begin that unless unless there is a requirement to think and act differently people will generally not do it if there's no consequence to it if I can just carry on like I always have or I can get around a system somehow I will do so while I don't necessarily think it's right as such mm. I think a good starting point is let's have some numbers in there let's have some requirements on people and I think a way to make sure that that sticks is a requirement perhaps in annual reports for businesses to report on the makeup of their staff um, you know yeah. and at what levels and what positions but also on pay because we haven't even touched on the whole issue of inequality of pay other. that's a whole other that's a whole other one <laughs> And the other one that I would want to bring in there in terms of, of best practice or good practice for, for employers, for companies, for corporates, is not only in their, their staffing, but also in their supply chain that, again, we haven't had a chance to touch on that. But many, many businesses across the world are trying to address economic inequality by making sure that there are businesses run by women, ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that are their main suppliers and not just, you know, kind of a token approach to it. Mm -hmm. So having said at the beginning, not so sure about, about setting quotas or requirements on people, I feel if we don't start there, and we're just relying on people's goodwill and good nature and humanity, we're going to get most of humanity, if we can call it, call it that, that won't want to do anything and are happy with the status quo. Because also it is about power and control, isn't it? Again, another big issue that we haven't on this, this um, podcast had time to address as part of this whole issue. So yeah, sorry to say, let's go with some quotas. Sounds like we need part two as well. Um, as you do, uh, your top tips. Um, I think I'll, I'll be coming at it from uh, a position of, of the, the impact of, of culture within our growing uh, culturally diverse you know, country because uh, we're not so insular anymore. There, you know, we, we've integrated so much with different parts of the world, and different parts of the world have, you know, come to see, um, or different people, you know, of the world have come to see the United Kingdom as home. So uh, for me, it will be uh, striving to have uh, more 
cultural competence within the workplace and to recognize the key agencies of that. So uh, people, uh, uh, because we, we uh, build relationships every day, you know, whether good ones or bad ones. Um, the, the environment in which we choose to create and nurture this relationship is also key, but also the vision uh, for which we um, are operating as a business. What is it that we or the business itself wants to achieve? We have to recognize that if we uh, set the right tone with ourselves first, because we, we have to in first look inwards um, to be able to drive any sort of, of meaningful change. We can't say we want to change the world, but remain the way we are. So we have to first look inwards and change ourselves. And by so doing, we then recognize how each of these three agencies will help us to bring about the change. But on a personal level, for those who are currently uh, leading um, and choosing you know, to educate themselves, because we're all on a journey of, of learning and education, um, I want to say uh, we have to be willing to uh, recognize uh, and the you know inequality where it exists. We can't sweep it under the carpet. We can't wish it away. We can't you know pretend it's not there. We have to be be big enough to recognize it, and that's what I was talking about having difficult conversations. And once you can be able to recognize it, you have to be able to understand how to respond to it. The, the response so far has been, as we've all said, training. Everybody just go on mass training. Uh, and then we can all report aboard that 90% of um, the, the staff workforce have been trained. And come six months later, we're not seeing any change, you know, in disciplinaries, in discriminatory practice, in staff, you know, going off long-term sick. But we keep happening on about, or maybe we need to bring in a new trainer, a new style of training to come and talk about the same old thing we've been talking about for 20 years and never have ever getting any results. Absolute mm. madness. Mm. Now, in responding to it, we have to be able to reassure those that we're leading, those we're working with, that we honestly are, you know, uh, going to be changing the way things are structured, the way things work. And in reassuring them, we have to put some of us, you know, our, our vulnerability. We have to be willing to be vulnerable to say, yes, um, I thought we had it sorted, but I know it's not sorted. I don't know how I'm going to resolve it immediately, but I am working with X, Y, Z to try to, you know, get to the bottom of it and openly ask for help. There is no shame in asking for help because that's another thing. We want to hide the fact that we're not dealing with the problem well by burying it on the, you know, fanciful words and fanciful you know, long-winded initiatives that will take years to materialize and never do materialize, thinking the problem would have disappeared or evolved into something 
more manageable problems never evolve to become more manageable. They only become more complex and more wicked in nature. And we have to be looking to resolve even when we disagree. So having people in leadership positions who see themselves as the be all and end all, we have to devolve ourselves from that style of leadership. We have to have corporate entities now that are about relationship building, about the authentic self. Everybody talks about bringing your whole self to work. Well, my whole self is not just me, the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, skilled, talented uh, or person. The whole of me is coming to work, you know, uh, with my very African self, uh, wanting to do a dance now and again. One of the places where I worked, you know, I would break out in dance and he got in the staff magazine. And I was told by a manager, that is so distracting when you dance. And I thought, well, you then don't want me because me means when I'm excited or when something, the day has gone really well, I want to be able to express it and, you know, share my joy with my colleagues That's, rather than yeah. sit in a corner uh, and just munching some grapes and then go and scream in my car and say, you know, I don't want to code switch. Yeah. But that is a requirement that if I want to thrive or if I want to be in a place of work, I must be able to code switch. I have to become who I'm not mm. so that the organization sees and considers me to be a perfect fit. And we need to stop doing that. We need to be seeing people for who they really are. We don't all have good days. Some days we have bad days. And I should be able to come into work and say to my manager, I had a rubbish day yesterday or a rubbish night. You know, I just need to be able to sit in a safe space and talk for five minutes and get on with my work rather than pretend the day has been absolutely fantastic. And you find people crying in toilets mm. because we are not allowing people to be themselves. So for me, it's we need to allow people to be themselves and we need to work with the agencies of cultural intelligence. Otherwise, we miss out on the very best of us and the very best that our industries can offer us. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Being able to bring your authentic self to anything um, is, is always, always much better. It's be better for you, better for your mental health, better for your relationships. Um, better for your output and productivity if you bring your, your authentic self to the to the matter mm -hmm. but having having that what you call that safe space to bring your authentic self and not just mm -hmm. feel like you have to comply is 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 what we need to enable um and and i think yeah that's that's a really good one that is a fantastic one and as a as, as a um you know somebody running an organization like that um i i know in the past you know that that kind of you you perhaps allow a little bit of that individualism to an extent because you know you don't want to uh, you don't want it to, uh, to 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 kind of you know other people to get too much of an idea that they can come to work and be you know oh. it's a it's a it's a party town and um, and and that that difficult balance um, of of keeping people in as you know mere robots just working away and. Um, you know, earning the money for the bosses to actually having the realization that we have people in and we've got to 
you know, foster those relationships and foster those people and make sure that they can grow themselves as they need to do. So I'm going to wrap it up there, if that's okay. Um, thank you very much for taking part. Really fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Um, hopefully to the people listening at home that, uh, that they will also enjoy it and learn something um, from it. I feel like it's, it's such a deep, interesting subject that of course we could take uh, you know, a number of these podcasts a number of times, a number of hours to go through everything. Um, all of the experiences that you've had in life um, all add to the mix of the people that you are. And I thank you very much for coming along and agreeing to do the show. Um, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you.